This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com Spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout. Due to the graphic nature of this case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Hump, I already told you. Arnie, Arnold, we need to talk. You're sounding a little drunk there, Hump. You owe me, Rothstein. The game was rigged. We both know the game was straight. But look, even if it wasn't, you lost, pal. People always gotta pay you, though, don't they? They pay because I run a clean game. (laughs) You're preaching to the choir. I'm clean, you're clean. We're all clean here. And when a clean man owes another clean man 300 grand, he tends to pay up. Or, you know, he finds some other way to, uh, make things right. Look, George, maybe this is worth discussing in person. You read my mind, Arnie. I've got a poker game. A friendly poker game running at the hotel here. If you want to head over, we can talk this out. Only if you swear it's friendly. I swear on my father's badge, you will be A-OK. I'll see you in a couple hours. Wonderful. On November 4, 1928, leader of the New York Jewish mob and notorious kingpin Arnold Rothstein went to a meeting to resolve an outstanding gambling debt. You want me to get your gun, boss? No, no, I'll be fine. Despite the nickname, old Hump McManus is a straight shooter. Arnold owed over $300,000 that he refused to pay. But when he left the meeting that night, clutching his gut and openly bleeding from a bullet wound, he realized his stubbornness and pride were about to cost more than even the infamous kingpin could afford. This is Unsolved Murders, true crime stories on the ParCast Network. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our first episode on Arnold Rothstein, a criminal genius whose penchant for gambling cost him everything. 
In life, Arnold Rothstein was a notorious kingpin. So for our investigation into Rothstein's murder, we've invited the hosts of ParCast's new podcast, Kingpins, to help us dig into the criminal underworld. We have Kate. Hi, Unsolved Murders listeners. And Howell. Hello, everyone. If you're interested in learning about the rise and fall of kingpins and queenpins, you can check out our new show, Kingpins, every Friday, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Some listeners have been asking how they can help support the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. Arnold Rothstein was a genius, a gangster, and a gambler. At the time of his death in 1928, he was one of the wealthiest and most powerful men in New York City, let alone the United States. On September 8, 1928, he took part in a high-stakes poker game with several of the country's most notorious gamblers. The game lasted for three days, and at the end of it, Arnold had lost $300,000. Arnold refused to pay, insisting the game had been rigged against him. George McManus, the man who had set up the game, spent several months trying to collect Arnold's debt but the kingpin remained tight-fisted. Finally, on November 4, 1928, George invited Arnold to a peace meeting at the Park Central Hotel to discuss some way they could come to an agreement. However, when Arnold arrived at the meeting, he was shot in the stomach. An elevator operator found him bleeding in the hotel's service corridor, and an ambulance took him to the nearest hospital. Police followed Arnold the whole way, pressuring him to tell them who had pulled the trigger. In keeping with mafia protocol, Arnold refused to identify his killer. After Arnold died, differing accounts of the peace meeting point to different killers, and Arnold's silence ultimately led to his murder being unsolved. Only a very unique kind of person would refuse to identify their own murderer. Howell and Kate can tell us exactly how unique Arnold Rothstein truly was. Thanks, Carter. Arnold Rothstein was the kingpin of New York City in the 1910s and 20s. In fact, Arnold was the prototypical kingpin, the first person to truly exemplify the glamorous lifestyle of an underworld boss. Arnold was filthy rich and he had his hands in every criminal venture in New York City. He owned several gambling houses and casinos throughout New York State and horse racing stables in Saratoga Springs. He bankrolled Broadway plays, government bribes, the first rum-running operations during Prohibition, and he was the first person to set up a stable drug-smuggling cabal in New York City. At the height of his wealth in 1925, Arnold Rothstein was worth over $10 million, the equivalent of $145 million today. He changed the public's perception of crime bosses, from crude and violent brutes, to our modern conception of kingpins as sophisticated, suave, and ruthless businessmen. Arnold's keen intellect, privileged upbringing, and lifelong experience gambling in the slums allowed him social mobility no gambler had possessed before. 
He bridged the gap between unrefined, openly violent street gangs, upscale corrupt politicians, and the hedonistic law-skirting behaviors of the fabulously wealthy. Arnold became the go-to man for every seedy element in the city, acting almost as a CEO for New York Crime Incorporated. He was so successful at treating crime like a business that reporter, screenwriter, and author Leo Katcher described him as the J.P. Morgan of the underworld, its banker and master of strategy. Arnold was so important to the criminal element of New York City that when he was murdered, the city fell into unorganized chaos. His delicately built empire was broken down into warring factions, each looking for their own piece of the pie. But to truly understand Arnold Rothstein and his murder, we need to understand his childhood and his subsequent rise to prominence and prestige. Arnold Rothstein was born on January 17, 1882, in Manhattan, to Abraham and Esther Rothstein. He spent most of his life in New York City, and his childhood was anything but normal. Something's rotten with that boy. Not Harry. Harry? Harry's great. I'm talking about Arnold. Oh, what did he do this time? I found him standing over Harry's bed with a knife. A knife! Arnold Rothstein threatened to kill his older brother with a knife when he was only three years old. It doesn't sound too surprising that a kid with those tendencies would grow up to be a criminal kingpin. Well, yes and no. Abraham Rothstein, Arnold's father, was actually known around the city as a principled and outstanding businessman. Harry Rothstein, Arnold's older brother, excelled in school and became a rabbi. The Rothstein clan was wealthy and well-respected. However, according to his father, Arnold was the only blemish on an otherwise upright family. Arnold was an intention seeker who resented the admiration people had for his brother. It sounds like a real Cain and Abel type of relationship. That's not far from the truth. The resentment and jealousy didn't result in murder, but it did drive Arnold to differentiate himself from his brother as much as he could. He decided to get attention by misbehaving. He specifically chose to pursue the one vice that his father particularly hated. Arnold loved playing dice. And he loved gambling. Arnold, is that you? How many times do I have to tell you? Gambling is not allowed. Arnold almost enjoyed his father yelling at him. When he was an adult, he said, Maybe I gambled just to show my father he couldn't tell me what to do. But I don't think so. He also told people about another motive for his gambling. The excitement, the thrill. When I'm gambling, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. As Arnold grew into his teens in the 1890s, it became more and more clear that he meant what he said. Arnold began spending most of his time in pool halls and at the racetracks. His academics suffered greatly, and by the time he turned 16, he had dropped out of school completely. He ventured to the seedy part of town, where his gambling habits brought him face to face with the criminal underworld. Organized crime in New York City was dominated by street gangs in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, but most of them were restricted to their own specific turf, or area, of operations. For instance, from 1890 to 1920, New York's most notorious street gang was the Five Points Gang, named after the Five Points, a region of the city whose exceptionally slum-like conditions were known around the world. 
The Five Points ran prostitution rings, ramshackle gambling houses, and extortion schemes. If you wanted to run a legitimate business, you had to pay the gang a cut of your profits. And if you wanted any sort of vice, the gang was your provider. However, gangs like this were geographically limited. The police were often too afraid to enter the Five Points, but they made sure the criminal activity was contained. The cops patrolled the border of these poorer neighborhoods vigorously, keeping gangs confined to a particular slum. The result was that turf became extremely valuable. If Arnold Rothstein wanted to play cards or pick up sex workers, he had to enter the slums to do it. When he was just a teenager, Arnold pursued his gambling hobby into the Five Points, wandering between underground gambling houses where poker and craps could be played in smoky rooms and back alleys. There he made connections with members of street gangs who shared his love of betting. In 1899, when Arnold was 17, he moved out of his parents' house and got a job as a traveling hat salesman. He worked throughout New York State. He mostly used his income to fund his gambling habit. But the more Arnold gambled, the better he got at it. Even though he did poorly in school, he demonstrated an extremely skilled understanding of mathematics and probability. He soon realized that most full-time gamblers didn't make their living through honest games with honest bets. Instead, the people in charge of pool halls, casinos, and racetracks made their money by fixing the odds in their favor. Pool hall operators would use weighted balls, card dealers at casinos would stack the decks, and racetrack aficionados would manipulate the odds and fix the race. With this realization, Arnold understood that if they could fix the games, he could too. Arnold decided he was no longer satisfied with making bets. He was going to work his way up the criminal ladder and become the man taking the bets instead. And number four has won the race. Yes. Hey, mister, I just won $100. Not a bad sum, young man, but you're not quite in the big leagues yet. Big leagues? How much did you win? Are you sure you want to know? You might feel inadequate. Inadequate? Please. How much did you win? Oh, not much. Only ten. Ten dollars? Ten thousand dollars. Ten thousand? How can you afford that? You have to bet big if you want to win big. And if you want to win big, you've got to do it from the inside. In the late 1800s and the early 1900s, gambling was the go-to pastime for the nation's powerful and obscenely wealthy. In New York State, all forms of gambling were illegal and required venturing into the slums and illegal gambling houses. But horse racing was a sport with an air of prestige. The rich had their own upscale bookies, boxes, and stands from which they could enjoy the races. The exclusive nature of these seats allowed their bets to be more easily concealed. The average gambler had to deal with shadier bookies that hung around the peripheries of the track. Thus, while both rich and poor alike gambled at the racetracks, the two worlds were profoundly different. In this way, Arnold was somewhat of an anomaly. The time he spent in gambling houses allowed him to understand the lingo of the lower class, and blend in with the seedy bookies. However, unlike his friends, Arnold's wealthy upbringing also allowed him to seamlessly associate with the rich. 
With this unique position and several years of work, Arnold was able to build an information network designed to help him turn his bets into sure things. Hey kid, looks like tough work you're doing. Think you could use a break? Maybe 10 minutes or so? At this rate, 10 minutes aren't gonna do me any good. I need to sit down for 20 minutes or more. I'll talk to your boss. Recommend he gives you 25. Gee, thanks mister. You know, these days just keep getting longer and longer. I had to clean Rising Glory's stable earlier, and it was just a real mess. I don't think she's feeling good at all. And you know, Easy Drifter in Stall 3 is really irritable. The dang horse tried to kick me! I think they changed her feet or something. Today's been real stressful. Well, kid, you're doing a real good job. Keep up the good work, and I'm sure it'll get better for you soon. I'll be sure to check up on you next week, alright? I'd really appreciate that, sir. The rich and poor alike had access to insider information. The poor bribed the working hands around the stables for tips and rumors about the horses. The rich used the information they got from simply owning a racehorse to make educated bets. But both sets of knowledge were incomplete. Arnold had a foot in both doors and therefore possessed a clearer picture than anyone else. Over the course of several years, he built his information network and accumulated a larger bank account by making informed bets. He started to gain a reputation as a successful gambler, and an air of intrigue surrounded him. When he wasn't using his reputation to secure money, he was using it to pursue women. In 1908, at 27 years old, he went to a cabaret show at the Hotel Cadillac. Boy, these dames are something else, aren't they, Arnold? There's something else indeed. But look at her. Wow, she's something special. Which one? The roll in the chorus line. That one. I think she saw you pointing at her. Good. Now she knows I want her. When the show ended, Arnold made a point of introducing himself. Excuse me, miss. Hey, this is the changing room. You can't be back here. I won't be long. I'm just here to ask if you'd be interested in getting a nice dinner with a good man. Good men tend not to enter the ladies' changing room. Well, I'm not entirely a good man. I'm just good at certain things. <laughs> I'd say. You look like a real sportsman. I am a sportsman of a type. The name's Arnold. Arnold Rothstein. Oh, my. I've got to be honest, Arnold. I've heard your name before. <laughs> so that's a yes to dinner, then? Absolutely, yes. Carolyn Green wrote in her autobiography that when her and Arnold met, it was love at first sight. After less than a year of dating, on August 12, 1909, the pair got married in Saratoga Springs. The racetrack there was a favorite travel destination for Arnold's gambling buddies. Shortly after the honeymoon, Arnold's true love, gambling, was about to bankrupt their finances and threatened the budding marriage entirely. We'll hear more about Rothstein's near downfall after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
Now, back to the story. In 1909, a newly married 27-year-old gambler named Arnold Rothstein ran into a string of bad luck. Bet after bet, Arnold lost and lost and lost until his bank account was nearly empty. He was ashamed of his poor luck, and he hid his finances from his wife. Arnold? There you are, Arnold. Hey, babe. How's Cindy doing? She's good. She's good. And she told me something really interesting. Yeah? What's that? She said she saw my jewelry at the pawn shop on 52nd Street. My jewelry that's been missing for a week? That's great. I wonder if they'll catch whoever took it. Stop with the runaround, Arnold. I know you pawned it. So what if I did? Look, you know that if you need money, my dad would be happy to lend us some. Your dad's a butcher. How much could he possibly have to lend? Well, you know, a couple hundred for day-to-day expenses, but I don't know. I think if you had something like a business venture... Business venture? What are you talking about? Wasn't Sullivan trying to get you and Willie Shea to open a bar together? That's not happening, honey. Sullivan's asking too much, and Willie's both unpleasant and unstable. But Sullivan isn't unstable. And as I was saying, my dad would be happy to help his son-in-law with something like a couple thousand if he got a little cut of the profits. A couple thousand? Your dad would lend me, uh, us two thousand dollars? Yeah, I was just talking to him about it the other day. Tell your dad to get the money ready. I've got to go talk to Willie about a bar. Thanks to his wife and his wife's father's generosity, Arnold Rothstein was able to make his first real step towards becoming a big player in the New York crime scene. Arnold's father-in-law lent him $2,000 in 1909. Adjusted for inflation, that $2,000 was the equivalent of $51,500 today. A very hefty chunk of money. The gamble Arnold's father-in-law took on Arnold was paid off big time. One of Arnold's wealthy friends from the racetracks, a politician named Big Tim Sullivan, arranged a partnership between Arnold and a man named Willie Shea. Big Tim Sullivan was an extremely powerful and extremely corrupt politician. He was born in the Five Point slums and had some minor connections to the street gangs, but instead of focusing on turf, he opened saloons and pursued a career in politics. Prior to 1909, he had served in the New York State Assembly, the New York Senate, and the United States House of Representatives. More important than all of that was Big Tim's connection to Tammany Hall. Tammany Hall was the dominant political force in New York City from 1853 to 1934. They were closely tied to the Democratic Party and had major influence in presidential elections. Tammany Hall leveraged the voting power of the city's poor and immigrant communities to gain political power and prominence. However, while the group initially served to help people in need, Tammany Hall became better known for rampant corruption. Tammany often used government funds to line their own pockets, forced the police to cover up personal scandals, and funneled funding for public works to their own districts in order to maintain their voting base. When Big Tim rose to power within Tammany, he further increased Tammany's connections to the criminal element of the city, primarily through his friendship with Arnold Rothstein. Now, Willie, I better not hear you say anything about his race or religion or whatever. 
The young man's a genius, and you need someone like him running the place if you want to make any money back on your investment. I just don't see how you can trust his kind, Tim. Maybe he'll make some money, but how much is he going to steal from me? Quiet, Willie. Come in. Hey, Tim. Willie, I've got the money. Two grand. You've got your buy-in, Willie? You mean ten times that, you- That's enough. Willie will take care of the rest of the purchasing price. You don't need to worry about that. I dare say it, boys, but I think you two are going to be very successful together. If you say so, Tim. Yeah, Tim, if you say so. During September and October of 1909, Arnold and Willie went through the process of buying a bar on West 46th Street in Manhattan and converting it into a discreet, undercover gambling house. West 46th Street was the number one spot in Manhattan for drinking and partying, as well as illicit activities such as sex work and gambling. The police were aware of the illegal activity, but so long as Tammany Hall got their cut of the action, officials turned a blind eye. For Arnold's gambling house, the man who kept it open was the man who encouraged its opening in the first place, Big Tim. With Arnold's business acumen, gambling expertise, and Big Tim's protection, Arnold's bankroll grew exponentially, and over the next few years, he asserted himself more firmly onto the New York scene. In 1909, most low-class gambling houses were controlled by street gangs and could erupt into violence at any time. The extremely wealthy gamblers tended to leave the city, and gamble in ritzy undercover casinos. Arnold's spot didn't pull in much of a crowd right out of the gates, but it attracted some low- and middle-class gamblers looking for a safe place to make bets. However, many of his patrons weren't too fond of Arnold. They didn't like his smart-aleck style of talking, and they decided to set him straight. One of these men was named Jack Conaway. In 1909, Jack was a successful stockbroker who also played a mean game of pool. So you're the Arnold Rothstein I've been hearing about, huh? Well, let me tell you, you don't look like much to me. I bet you can't even beat me in a game of pool. I've got $500 that says I can. You're going to end up paying a lot more than $500 by the time the night is through. Jack Conaway and his friends thought they would put Arnold in his place. The two started playing at 8 p.m. The first game was close. Ha! Pony up, Mr. Rothstein. You owe me 500 bucks. You don't think this is settled after just one game, do you? We're going double or nothing. You're on, smart guy. Jack pulled far in the lead at the start of the second game. He sunk shot after shot, and the spectators started joining in the betting. Looks like I'm about to take your money again. Don't get cocky with me, kid. Arnold managed to pocket several balls in a single turn, winning the second game with an absolutely unexpected comeback. He beat Jack by a single ball. The game was on. The crowd grew throughout the night, watching these two bitter rivals play endless games, the sound of rolling balls echoing through the night. The duo played until they were kicked out of the bar at 4 a.m., fueled purely by a desire to humiliate the other person and take all their cash. It was a marathon game of pool, the likes of which New York had never seen. By the end of the night, Arnold came out on top. He walked away from the table with $4,000 of Jack Conaway's cash. Adjusted for inflation, that would be over $100,000 earned from a single night of pool. 
Jack Conaway and his friends had intended to make Arnold look like a fool. But instead, the entire city had seen Arnold fleece Jack for a small fortune. The game only served to boost Arnold's reputation. Arnold's newfound fame led many people to go to his gambling house specifically. Arnold and Willie began to make a killing, bringing in ten dollars to $15,000 of revenue each month. What would now be approximately two hundred and fifty to four hundred thousand dollars on a monthly basis. For the next year, everything went well for Arnold. He continued making connections throughout the city with police, politicians, theater people, and thugs. One night in the middle of November, nineteen ten, Rothstein managed to bring in a whale of a mark, or a wealthy person primed to spend a lot of money at the gambling house. The Mark's name was Charles Gates. Gates was the son of John W. Gates, the unbelievably wealthy co-founder of the United States Steel Corporation and inventor of barbed wire. Charles Gates entered Rothstein's establishment, believing Rothstein to be his friend. By the end of the night, Charles had lost $40,000 to Rothstein's gambling house. Adjusted for inflation, that's approximately $1,020,000. Arnold went home to his wife and excitedly told her about how much money he had made that night. However, when Arnold showed up to work the next day, Willie and the $40,000 were nowhere to be found. After hours of searching the city, Arnold finally found Willie drunk at a bar. Willie! We need to talk. Ah, there you are, you filthy dog. You've been cheating me every day for the past year, and I bloody well know it. You aren't getting a cent of that money from me. Think of it as paying interest for all my cents you hid under your dirty little mattress. I'm not here for money. I came to say I never want to see you again. That makes two of us. Leave, and we'll both be happy. No, I need you to sign this, and I need you to sign it now. It's a contract swearing that you'll give all ownership of our business to me. That way we can truly be through with each other. You are a sucker, aren't you? Of course, I'll sign your little paper. There, now get out of my face. Gladly. When people heard about the deal Arnold made with Willie, they felt like Willie had pulled a fast one on him. They couldn't believe Arnold had let the man cheat him and walk away unharmed. Most thugs and gamblers made sure cheaters couldn't use their kneecaps ever again. Of course, as time went on, it became clear to everyone in New York that Arnold had been the smart one after all. His business made three to four times the amount of money Willie had stolen every year, and now he was the sole owner. When Willie realized that he had made a grave mistake, he went groveling back to the gambling house. I was drunk, Arnold. You can't hold a man to a contract when he's drunk. I'll pay you the 40000 and then some. Just give me back my part of the business. Get out of here before I throw you out. You're a crook and a welcher. Arnold then expanded his wealth by hiring steerers. Steerers were people who scouted out wealthy suckers and brought them to Arnold's casino. Most of his steerers were good-looking women actresses and showgirls who wanted to make a little extra cash on the side. Some of these steerers became more than employees. They became Arnold's mistresses. Showgirl Bobby Winthrop and Broadway actress Inez Norton both became infatuated with the man. 
Carolyn grew suspicious of Arnold, but there was little she could do. He argued these women were simply a part of his business. And that was at least partly true. With the help of these steerers, Arnold was able to grow his wealth to an unprecedented level. By 1913, he had increased his everyday bankroll to $300,000, $7.5 million adjusted for inflation. Arnold began walking around town with no less than $2,000 on his person at any given time. He was soon given the nickname, The Big Bankroll. He saw his wealth as an opportunity to create more wealth, and he started funding anything he thought would result in a good return on investment. If a rising actress wanted to finance a play, Arnold was her guy. If a politician needed a campaign contribution, Arnold was the guy. If a gambler needed funds to open a gambling house, Arnold was the guy. If a mob boss needed some money to help the police look the other way after a whack, Arnold was the guy. Arnold began opening larger, more opulent gambling houses, at least two more in Manhattan and one casino in Saratoga Springs called The Brooks. At this point, Arnold was the gambling king of New York. Nobody could compete with the popularity and prestige of his underground casinos. Many street gangs didn't even try to compete with Arnold. Instead, they used him as a go-between, nicknaming him the Man Uptown. If street gangs or corrupt labor unions had disputes, Arnold became the man who negotiated peace. With Arnold as an adjudicator, the street gangs were able to move past turf wars and into a more peaceful era of organized crime. He became so skilled at ensuring mutually beneficial arrangements between gangs, the gangs would pay him whatever he asked. In one instance, two street gangs happily paid Arnold half a million dollars to plot out trade routes for them. Arnold's own operations stretched throughout the city, but his influence and connections allowed him access to anything he needed from any group that skirted the law. He was truly a man without rival. Of course, all of this was illegal, but thanks to his connections at Tammany Hall, Arnold was invincible. On January 19, 1919, when Arnold was just 29 years old, he got into a situation during a floating game of craps that proved exactly how invincible he was. Okay, seven. Solid roll. You want to let it ride or switch your bet? What? Who squealed on our location this time? One of you get your boys to come steal the pot? Nobody wants to fess up, huh? I'll show you what happens to thieves. We're coming in. Like hell you are! Put your guns down now. We're police. You shot my partner. New York City police raided a craps game that Arnold Rothstein was playing in, and Arnold mistook the cop for a robber. He fired his gun without seeing who was coming through the door and shot a cop in the arm. He was arrested and charged with assault, but after Big Tim got involved, and Arnold paid a hefty sum of money, the officer dropped the charges, and Arnold was set free. Arnold put his fingers in every pie that he could, but he never forgot his one true love, gambling. Well, the man who could pay for everything would soon use his obscene wealth to make the most infamous bet he would ever make, a bet against the Chicago White Sox winning the 1919 World Series.
We'll learn more about Rothstein and that infamous championship right after this. And now, back to the story. Arnold Rothstein had acquired so much wealth, people nicknamed him the Big Bankroll. Arnold didn't just sit on that money. He was always looking for the next opportunity to make more. In 1919, 37-year-old Arnold turned his attention to baseball. In the early 1900s, baseball was growing to unprecedented heights of national popularity. It was being marketed as America's pastime. America loved its new sport. And when World War I started in 1914, the nation needed something positive to bond over. Baseball was seen as a wholesome activity, good for the whole family. Unfortunately, while the Great War increased the popularity of baseball with a law-abiding portion of America, it also gained the attention of the gamblers. The sport slowly started to turn crooked. Gamblers began paying off players and asked them to throw the games. Coaches and team owners largely looked the other way to save the game's new, idealized reputation. Arnold Rothstein saw this as the perfect opportunity to make a profit. In September of 1919, Joseph Sport Sullivan, one of Arnold Rothstein's associates, approached Chick Gandel, first baseman for the White Sox, the best team in the league. Hey, Chick, you've been playing well. Have the paychecks been as good as you? Not at all. Comiskey's still the cheapest SOB this side of the Mississippi. You know, if you want a little extra money, I think I could get you something. I'm not looking for a loan, especially not from you. No offense. None taken, none taken. It wouldn't be a loan, it would be a payment. All I'm asking is that instead of playing well for Comiskey, you play a little poorly for yourself. You want me to do that this week? No, no, not this week. During the World Series. How much are you offering? $10,000. If the World Series goes sideways, you'll make more than twice as much money as you make in an entire year. One man can't lose a game. You'll need at least six or seven others, but if Comiskey's as cheap as you say, that shouldn't be a problem. At first, Chick was hesitant to agree, but Rothstein was several steps ahead. Within the week, A. Battelle, former boxer and Rothstein's personal bodyguard, approached another White Sox player with a similar offer. Abe offered the players less money, but with two offers coming in from two allegedly different gamblers, the White Sox players thought the fix was a sure thing. They agreed to the deals, and by the end of the World Series, the White Sox had lost the pennant. Well, the loss was convincingly real to most people. And it was especially real for Arnold Rothstein, who had used several different agents to place bets against a White Sox victory. Most historians agree that Arnold made at least $350,000 on the series, if not more. Adjusted for inflation, that's approximately $9 million for fixing the World Series. $350,000 was more money than most people would have seen in their lifetimes. But for Arnold Rothstein, who had around $4 million at the time, it seems like a small sum. The fact that Rothstein didn't bet more on the fix has led many people to question how involved he was in the first place. Some historians think Arnold didn't actually arrange the fix himself, and he only heard about it through the grapevine. However, both people who approached the White Sox were noted underlings of Arnold Rothstein. 
The odds that two people from the same organization would approach the same team with the same offer around the same time and not be involved with each other are incredibly slim. In the end, what matters is that the World Series was thrown, and Arnold Rothstein made a small fortune off of the game. Over the course of the next year, rumors of the fix started to spread. In order to quell public outcry, the Major League Baseball Association conducted an investigation into what had publicly become known as the Black Sox scandal. Before going to court in 1920, the players involved in the scandal gave their testimonies, admitting to a fault how they had conspired to fix the World Series. Based on their testimonies, Arnold Rothstein was implicated as the mastermind behind the scandal, and on October 26, 1920, he was called to testify before a grand jury in Chicago. Arnold Rothstein, you've been accused of arranging the big fix. Do you have anything to say in your defense? Of course, Your Honor. I am completely innocent. I was not in on it. I wouldn't have gone into it under any circumstances, and I didn't bet a cent on the series after I found out what was underway. The prosecutors failed to provide any substantial evidence linking Arnold to the big fix, and after Arnold's testimony, the grand jury chose not to indict him. Shortly after the grand jury, all the records, testimonies, and written confessions of the players mysteriously went missing. The courts were forced to give up their investigation, and all the players were acquitted. According to the United States court system, the 1919 Black Sox scandal never even happened. Arnold Rothstein will be forever remembered for his role in The Big Fix, but it was not even his most significant criminal enterprise. Darling? Did you see the paper? Prohibition has become law. Are your bars gonna be okay? Okay? Honey, they're gonna be booming. Prohibition isn't a barrier, it's an opportunity. I'll get booze from Canada, booze from England. I'll fill the city with booze. I'll be the only one doing it and I'll make a killing too. Are you sure this is a risk you should be taking? Honey, somebody's gotta give the people what they want. It may as well be me. In 1920, prohibition became national law, banning all forms of alcohol in the nation. By the end of 1920, at 38 years old, Arnold Rothstein had already set up complicated smuggling routes to import and sell alcohol. He was the first gangster in the United States to make a profit bootlegging. People like Al Capone merely followed in his footsteps. Arnold's gambling houses and speakeasies filled the city and his bank accounts got even more stuffed than they were before Prohibition, allowing him to reach the height of his bankroll at $10 million. By 1924, Arnold's bootlegging profits had reached their limits. He sold to every speakeasy in the city, and there was nowhere left for him to expand his liquor business. He also couldn't raise the prices because people would only pay so much for liquor. Ever the shrewd businessman, Arnold recognized that the business opportunity that he had created was slowly turning into a business liability. In 1925, he decided to pivot towards something more lucrative. Well, if it isn't the brain himself, to what do I owe the pleasure? You've been running booze for me for a while now. You know the roots pretty well now, I'm sure. Better than anyone in the city. Good. I want you to start bringing in something else. I've already got a cellar arranged down south. No problem, boss. Sounds a bit risky, though. 
Normally, riskier work gets better pay. You pull this off, we'll all get better pay. That's all I needed to hear. Arnold Rothstein was not only the first true bootlegger during Prohibition, he became one of the first gangsters to traffic narcotics, mostly heroin, in and out of New York City. Arnold filled every street corner, every speakeasy, every casino, and every Broadway show with heroin. As he expanded his drug network, he took on promising young protégés and showed them their way around the business. These protégés were men like Meyer Lansky, Charles Lucky Luciano, Dutch Schultz, and Jack Legs Diamond. Each of these men controlled dozens of underlings and dozens of street corners throughout the city, and their collective influence would eventually stretch across the United States. Arnold Rothstein was above them all, and he was the one who prepared them for the day they could become kingpins in their own rights. It wouldn't take too long for that day to come. Arnold's downward spiral began in early 1927. Carolyn, what are you doing up so late? I know what you've been up to. I'm tired of it. Can't this wait till morning? Maybe save it for the therapist that pays so much for couples counseling? No, it can't wait. I'm done with couples counseling and I'm done with you. I want a divorce. Carolyn had grown tired of Arnold. His years of sleeping around with younger women and flaunting his wealth in front of them had made Carolyn sick of him. Arnold refused to get a divorce, and because of his refusal, the divorce was never officially finalized. However, Carolyn's request for a divorce signaled the beginning of the end for 45-year-old Arnold Rothstein. For decades, Arnold's luck had paid off handsomely. Now his luck had turned sour. He began making mistakes and sloppy bets, losing more money on gambling than he had ever lost before. His wealth was so expansive and his sources of income so constant that his gambling losses didn't significantly diminish his bank account. However, the losses were psychologically taxing and indicative of how much mental energy the divorce proceedings were taking away from him. Over the course of a year, Arnold made increasingly poor decisions, which culminated in a single poker game that took place over three days, September 8th, 9th, and 10th, 1928. This particular poker match was the poker event of the year. Everyone who was anyone was going to be there, including high rollers from the Pacific Coast. This was a much bigger deal in the 1920s when it took around 10 days to travel from coast to coast. Some big names at the match were the Boston Brothers, the Solomon Brothers, and Red Martin Lowe. All of them were known for their poker prowess on the East Coast, but they were largely insignificant to Arnold's story. The West Coast gamblers were the ones who really changed the game. Nate Raymond was a poker player and gambler from California who had been making a name for himself fixing Pacific League baseball games. There was also a man named Titanic Thompson, Titanic's real name was Alvin Clarence Thomas, but he liked his nickname so much that he often introduced himself as Titanic. Titanic was a famous gambler and hustler known for making extreme bets on absurd things. To many, the stories they heard about Titanic were reminiscent of Tom Sawyer's antics, the only difference being that Titanic was a real person. Even the story of how Titanic earned his nickname 
Sounds like a gambler's folk tale. He bet a man $200 that he could jump lengthwise across a pool table. After setting up a mattress to cushion his fall, he sprinted towards the table and flew over it without ever touching the felt. The bet ruined the man, saying Thompson had sunk him. Another patron responded by saying that Thompson sinks everybody. At that point, they decided they should just call him Titanic because he was the real sinking tragedy. From that day on, the nickname stuck. Titanic liked the scale of the name, and those who met the man agreed that it suited him. The last major player was George Hump McManus, who set up the game in the first place. Hump McManus was a gambler with many family connections in the New York police force. One of his brothers was even a lieutenant in his local precinct. Because Hump had arranged the game, he took responsibility for making sure people paid up. It was more than just making sure the money was placed in the right hands. Hump's reputation was at stake. With all the major players present, Arnold Rothstein, Titanic Thompson, Nate Raymond, and George Hump McManus, the game was ready to begin. Looks like five of hearts. I'll check. Ah, this is high stakes, fellas. I'll check as well. I'll raise 200. Call. 200. You boys are off your rockers. I'll fold. Uh, I'll have to fold as well. Show them, boys. I've got a flush. Good luck beating that. That's a nice try, Mr. Rothstein. But a flush don't beat what I got. Full house. The game continued for hours, and after several breaks for sleeping, it eventually stretched to three days. Much like the marathon pool game that had earned him much of his notoriety, Arnold Rothstein refused to concede defeat. Unfortunately for Arnold, the longer he played, the more he lost. The deal of the cards began to take on a strange pattern. Three of a kind. Flush. Every time Arnold got a good hand, a hand that would usually be a winning hand, Titanic Thompson or Nate Raymond would have a hand that was just slightly better. You can't beat me this time, boys. I've got four of a kind. Ooh, sorry, big guy. Royal flush. That's it, you filters. This game is fixed and I ain't having it. You can leave anytime you want, so long as you pay. The game is fixed. I'm not paying any of you rubes. You owe me $300,000. You better pay up or you're the welcher. You're getting nothing from me. When Arnold left, the fact that he refused to pay a bet became public knowledge. The legendary gambler Arnold Rothstein was proving himself to be a major hypocrite. Just to make it clear, Arnold Rothstein was right. The game was fixed. All right, Nate. Everyone's expecting me to fix this thing. So if I win, it'll look incredibly suspicious. But if I win, there'll be none the wiser. Exactly. I'll stack the deck in your favor as well as I can. You and I, Nate, we're going to fleece these East Coast dirtbags. Especially that Rothstein character. We'll milk him for all he's got. It's unclear as to whether or not George McManus was in on the plot to rig the game. In reality, it didn't actually matter. George was responsible for people paying up. And if his players didn't pay, new players would never take part in George's games in the future. His reputation was at stake, and his livelihood along with it. 
George initially thought he could get through to Arnold and eventually convince him to pay. However, as weeks went by, it became clear that Arnold wasn't joking around. George had to make it clear. He wasn't joking around either. George, it's Arnold. I'm here to talk. Hey, Arnold. Come on in. Oh. What's he doing here? He's here to talk. Just here to talk with the rest of us. The conversation lasted for a short time before... On November 4th, 1928, Arnold Rothstein was found bleeding to death in a service corridor of the Park Central Hotel. He had attended a peace talk with George McManus and got shot instead. The police and an ambulance showed up to take Arnold to the nearest hospital. As they rushed through the city streets, they tried to get as much information as they could from Arnold. Arnold, we need to know. You could die any minute now. Who shot you? My mother did it. Other tellings of the story say Arnold responded with another line. You stick to your business, I'll stick to mine. And still another telling says that Arnold simply put his finger up to his mouth in the universal mafioso sign of silence, death before the dishonor of snitching. What he actually said or did is up for debate, but the point is that he refused to tell the cops who had actually shot him. At 10.15 a.m. on November 5th, or according to some sources on the morning of November 6th, Arnold Rothstein died from the gunshot wound. The only witness to the murder who had any motive to be honest was gone from this world. Rothstein's murder shook New York City. The city's biggest kingpin, a man with a hand in countless legal and illegal operations, was dead. Unfortunately, the investigation was stunted by corruption from the police department, the district attorney's office, and every branch of the judicial system. Corruption that was spurred by a key suspect's intimate ties with the police department. In the case of Arnold Rothstein's murder, the lines between politics and the underworld, the lines he worked so hard to blur, would come back to haunt him from beyond the grave. Join us next week as we dig into the trial of George McManus, the life and possible murder motives of Dutch Schultz, and one historian's intriguing theory that Rothstein's murder had nothing to do with the infamous poker game at all. You can find Unsolved Murders and all of ParCast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, and your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. And if you enjoyed this episode, you can find Kingpins wherever you listen to podcasts with new episodes every Friday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is by leaving a five-star review wherever you listen. We'll all be back next week to finish up this investigation. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. 
if we live till next time. Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, and Kingpins were created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler, are a production of Cutler Media and are part of the ParCast Network. They are produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode was written by Giles Hofseth and stars Howell Hargett, Kate Leonard, Wendy McKenzie, and Carter Roy. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Osteen, Harris Markson, Steve Pinto, and Dan Velasquez.